Welcome, everyone, to Creating a Family, Talk About Infertility. I'm Dawn Davenport. I am the host of this show, as well as the director of the nonprofit, creatingafamily.org. Today, we're going to be talking about the IVF process from the male partner's perspective. We'll be talking with Keegan Prue. He is an educator and author from upstate New York, and he and his wife, Olivia, went through two rounds of IVF and suffered two miscarriages before welcoming their daughter into this world. And Keegan wrote a book about his experience called The IVF Dad. And this book shares their story and also just covers the process of infertility uh, and offers tips for both men as well as couples to support their mental well-being through what can be a challenging family building process. Uh, So welcome, Keegan, to Creating a Family. We're so happy to have you. Thanks so much, Don. It's really uh, an, an honor to be here, and I'm so happy to talk about this really important topic. I thoroughly enjoyed the book, The IVF Dad. It I don't think we hear enough from the men's male's perspective. So uh, thank you so much. It's, uh, it's, uh, I, I, has the book been well-received? Oh, it really has. It's been just a thrill to hear from people really all around the world in, in Australia and in the UK and, of course, here in the States who are at various points in their own journey and hearing from both, both men and women and couples who have read the book and who have said it's really helping them understand how to approach the process, understand how to stay connected with each other and how to support each other. That's just the most meaningful thing in the world to me because I certainly know how lonely it can be. And so it's been uh, really wonderful to get that reception to hear from folks about how it's been helpful. You know, IVF can be an isolating and emotionally draining experience (laughs) for both males and females. But I think that the professionals have spent much more time focusing on the experience of women or the person trying to conceive than on their male partner. And and it's understandable. I mean, they are the ones going through the, the treatment. I think that that's a mistake, however, because when there is a male partner who is involved, their experience influences everything, uh, mm-hmm. including their ability to support the, the person going through the actual treatment. Yeah, let me pause for a moment and just for a word on terminology. You know, this is a tough one because we're going to be referring to male and female, man and woman, but we do know that many different configurations can be involved with making a baby. So we're going to try to make our language reflect that reality. But when we say male, female, or man, woman, that does not negate that others who, the others who are experiencing this, but not identifying as male or female. But this is a tough one because we are specifically speaking of the experience, your experience, Mm -hmm. and the experience, the more uh, the more usual experience, which is the woman is going through a woman is going through the treatment, and she has a partner who is a man. So let's start by telling your story to parenthood. Sure. So our our path to parenthood started uh, just about uh, five years ago. It was the summer of 2017, and we were in the process of moving from New York City, which is where my wife Olivia and I met, uh, to upstate New York, which is where we're based now and where I grew up. And um, at the point that we made that move, we had just gotten married. We, you know, had our our jobs upstate and so forth. And we said, I think we're ready to to start growing our family. We had definitely known that we wanted to have kids, hope to have at least two or three. We're in our uh, early 30s at this time. So we knew we, you know, 
would probably need to get started sooner rather than later if we wanted to meet that goal. And so just started to to try to conceive. Um, six or seven months went by and nothing had happened. So at that point, we, you know, had to have a conversation between ourselves to to kind of understand, you know, how are we feeling about this? It seems like maybe something isn't working. We certainly read sort of the research and recommendations and saw that you should try for a year uh, before pursuing help. But we also knew again that we were in our in our early 30s, approaching our mid 30s and, and knew what our goals were. And so we decided to be proactive at that point, went to get checked out. I got my semen analysis. Olivia went to her OBGYN and, and asked for a hormone workup and, and other testing. Uh, and basically everything at that point came back normal. You know, there was no suggestion that there was any issues, you know, b- between either of us. So, you know, the OBGYN said, let's try three cycles of timed intercourse with letrozole, see if that works. And uh, hopefully we'll be we'll be done. Hopefully that's all we need. Simultaneous to this, we, we sort of, you know, maybe call it intuition, call it uh, just planning. But we reached out to a couple of the fertility clinics in the area, decided on one that we thought would be a good fit, and just made an initial consultation appointment for a couple of months down the road, just with that you know, foresight of we want to get this on the books just in case. Obviously, we hope that the letrozole would work, but spoiler alert, it didn't. <laughs> so, uh, so we were glad that we kind of were very proactive at that point to say we're going to make this appointment because everybody knows it can, it can take a while to get in, you know, with any sort of medical thing. So when we finally made it to the RE, they redid a lot of the testing. It had been about five or six months since our initial testing, then we had that first conversation with our fertility doctor and found out something kind of interesting, which was that Olivia's AMH level was actually low for her age. And so this contradicted what we had heard from the OBGYN. Uh, and so that was a first kind of big takeaway for us was that, you know, a reproductive endocrinologist really has a different lens that they're bringing. Mm-hmm. So we were glad that we had been proactive. And so what resulted from this was, you know, the recommendation to go straight to IVF, given our age, given our family building goals. And so we we dove right into it and started the IVF process. We got our first egg retrieval in the fall of 2018, did a fresh embryo transfer, which unfortunately resulted in the first miscarriage regrouped for a couple of months, went back and and had uh, some additional frozen embryos. So we did a frozen embryo transfer the following February, uh, which again, unfortunately resulted in a miscarriage at 12 weeks. And that was really the lowest point in our journey. That was a really difficult time when we had to really kind of reassess and regroup, which was good in some ways. It gave us some time to just reconnect, to do some travel, to do some things that we had put off because of treatment. Uh, it also gave us some time to look into uh, what other family building options were out there. We, we got to meet with some really wonderful adoption uh, support groups in our area who were just tremendously helpful and really um, gave us a lot of hope during that time. But once we had kind of settled out, uh, we went back to the RE. They did some additional recurrent loss testing for Olivia, which was helpful. It revealed a blood clotting factor. So uh, she said, let's add Lovenox, a blood thinner for future cycles. Went back for another round of IVF, another retrieval, and then did PGT testing on those embryos because we knew there was a genetic factor to our losses. And then in October of 2019, uh, did our third embryo transfer uh, with a PGT tested embryo and that resulted in the birth of our daughter and then now we're really happy to be expecting our second daughter uh, next month actually uh, again through IVF so that is the journey excellent and your second daughter congratulations thank you was uh, she a frozen embryo that from the second cycle 
she was actually a frozen embryo from the first cycle. So she's a little bit unique in that she, her embryo was frozen and defrosted twice, which is not typical practice, but the, the research on double frozen embryos sort of shows that there's a, a pretty minimal effect now on, you know, the, the degree to which that affects implantation and ongoing pregnancy. So again, fortunate to work with a great clinic that has a great uh, lab. And so, yeah, a little bit unique there in that uh, this embryo was actually created before our first daughter was born. So just one of those funny things that, that can happen with the, the amazing science of fertility treatment. I am sure your girls will have fun with that. And uh, yeah. <laughs> the younger one is going to uh, use that to her advantage at some day. I, I, at least I oh, hope she definitely. does. Oh, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You know, one of the things I think that gets in the way oftentimes is, for both men and women, quite frankly, is the imagined role that, that, that we think a male partner is supposed to bring to any situation. And that, of course, bleeds over into infertility. So what are some of the roles that, that you, as well as other men, based on everything, the media, our society, the way we're raised, the stories we are read, what are some of the things that we imagine that men are supposed to do and be in any relationship and how they're supposed to approach anything, any message, any, any, um, anything that we're doing, including IVF. Yeah, those messages are so powerful. And so some of the ones that are probably sounding pretty familiar to everybody listening, you know, men should be strong Men don't need support. They, they help themselves. Uh, real men, you know, are, are able to quote, get their, their partner pregnant that uh, real men don't show emotion. You know, all these messages, we're not saying they're true, of course, but they're very powerful. And, and as you said, uh, Don, they're reinforced by media. They're reinforced by yeah. uh, books we read. They're, they're reinforced by, you know, songs and really like everything that we hear in our lives. So whether we personally kind of feel like we believe in these things or not, I think there's a real power to them. And we, and we do bring those ideas into fertility treatment. And one of the things I really try to put front and center in the book is that those mindsets can actually be really limiting and and make fertility treatment even harder. Absolutely. And and are not helpful to the female partner, even, I mean, you know, real men, another one that, that, uh, that we often, I mean, just, if you just think of the commercials we see, real men take action. They fix the problem. If there's a sink broken, the man, a real man anyway, can fix it. And and so it's hard to think. So you you approach infertility with, okay, I'm going to fix this problem. But it's not within your power to do that. No, it's not. And and there's so much that we that we can't fix, you know, and there's there are things that are within our control, but so much is out of our control during infertility. And so that can be a real challenge, I think, for for those ideas that men tend to bring to it. And certainly I experienced this, you know, one of the ways that showed up for me was, you know, I felt I could take action by doing more research or or finding Things that, you know, maybe Olivia or I could do to, in terms of lifestyle changes to maybe increase our odds of success. So, you know, during one point in our treatment, I got really into researching how thyroid levels affect uh, infertility because uh, Olivia has sort of minor hypothyroidism. And so I got into this mode of, you know, having 35, 40 tabs open up on my computer, looking at all these research studies and really getting obsessed over, you know, if I can just find that one thing that can fix Mm -hmm. what's going on. But of course, again, we know that's, that's not the case. And that only made me more anxious. And then of course, made Olivia feel more pressure because I was, you know, going crazy uh, looking at all these studies. So, so that certainly didn't help. 
and then again later, you know, kind of found some some research or suggestions or people posting on social media that you know going gluten free helped to solve their infertility issues. And then you know had one one crazy night where I got really down that rabbit hole and went to the grocery store and got all this gluten free stuff and, and had it all laid out before Olivia got home from work and she walked in and just took one look at me and was like, "What are you doing?" <laughs> so uh, it, it wasn't helpful. But again, I think it goes back to that message of men fix things, men have to take action and do something, and so. Yes. That was really not helpful for me, and actually, you know, was was we can laugh at it now, but uh, was yeah. not the best action for me to take at that time for for me or for Olivia. Yeah, I I appreciate that because I tend to also think that I can solve problems through research, and it's it's a way of trying to take back control, obviously. But uh, when you feel out of control, mm-hmm. but I did appreciate that it brought a lot of research to the book, the IVF Dad. So one of the things, can you share some of the things that you learned through your research and through discussing it with your RE that a male partner can do to improve the quality or quantity of their sperm? Yeah, this is a great area where we do have some degree of control. You know, a couple of, of facts I always try to share to make sure that, that men and couples know is, first of all, the most current research suggests that up to 50% of infertility issues where couples are experiencing infertility have some degree of male factor causing them, uh, which I don't think is what people would expect. We, we again, you know, here, here messages have stereotypes. I think most people believe that most of the treatment is focused on the female partner. But that, that research shows that, you know, there, there's a big contributing factor of, of male factor infertility. So I think that's really important for people to know. The second thing that's really important for people to know is it is possible to, over time, increase the quality and quantity of your sperm. It takes about two to three months for the body to generate sperm cells. And so over that time, you can see there's, there's actually an opportunity to make some choices and make some adjustments in your own life that can optimize your, your fertility. So a couple of things men can do, you know, first definitely is regular exercise. And I always say that can look however it makes sense for you, right? You don't have to be going to join a, a crazy CrossFit uh, class. Although of course, you know, knock yourself out if that's for you. For, for me, I really like to walk. I like to hike. I like to get outside. Um, it doesn't have to be something crazy, but just those things that can, you know, keep you healthier are really good. The, you know, the second thing that goes along with that, of course, is uh, making adjustments to our diet. You know, it's, uh, you know, not anything that is probably too surprising, but, you know, high levels of smoking or alcohol intake or sugar intake, not generally good for sperm health. So if you can make some adjustments to include more fruits, vegetables, healthy proteins, that can all contribute to improving your sperm health. Uh, and then, of course, talk to your doctor, too. There are, there are certain vitamins, supplements, other things that, that may help. There's, of course, a lot of information out there, some of which is, is more suspect. So make sure to talk to your doctor about that. But uh, the important takeaway is it really is possible to, to optimize your sperm health. And, and it's not always going to be a fix. You know, if you have an extreme case where maybe you don't have any sperm, um, or you have an extremely low sperm count, it may not make as much of a difference, but anything that we can do to optimize our fertility is really important. And so, you know, there are some choices that we can make to, to do that. Okay. Excellent. So going back to the emotional side of things, what are some, uh, when your wife was starting to go through treatment, what were some of the emotions that you felt and that others you have spoken with have felt other men have spoken with are are men or those who are supporting a person trying to get pregnant. What are some ways that you felt when Olivia, your wife was beginning infertility treatment? 
Yeah, a, a lot of a lot of emotions. You know, first, definitely a lot of fear. Fear that uh, you know maybe the thing that we'd really hoped for. We we both wanted children so much, and and we're both the type of people who wanted to be parents for really our entire lives. And so, first was just that fear of mm-hmm. you know something that we thought was kind of a given in our lives, and that we're we're told through so much of our lives is just something that will happen was really threatened, and, and that was scary. That that definitely brought in a lot of fear. And then, you know, of course, it made me angry too. You know, I was I was angry at thinking about, you know, the, the possibility of not having kids. Again, it seemed like something that was so certain was taken away. And then, of course, that that leads into feeling ashamed because this tends to happen at a point in your life when everybody else you know is also kind of in their family building journey. So that can be a lot of pressure. And then, you know, there was also just feeling sort of worried for Olivia, right? I was very mindful of how she was feeling through this. And I knew what a toll it was taking on her. Um, And so that I think kind of blends back into what you'd asked earlier about men and their roles. You know, it, I think, helped or made me put a lot of pressure on myself around trying to be the strong partner as you know, is that stereotype for men, because I was very uh, mindful of how Olivia was feeling, saw what a toll this was taking on her. And, you know, that kind of pushed me sometimes to feel like I had to play that strong supportive role that is the the stereotypical role for the male. So yeah, it was it was all of these emotions at once. And of course, uh, really, really difficult. And also the worry over the cost. I mean, let's be honest, you had insurance, not everyone does. But even with insurance, there are costs associated with infertility treatment and not costs that you've been planning for for years and years because you weren't planning if this was going to be a part of it. So, yeah, well, yeah, that's another worry. It can be a huge stressor. And again, we were so fortunate to to have an insurance coverage for three cycles because that can be such a huge source of worry. And again, going going back to kind of those those stereotypes, I think a lot of men absorb that message that you're supposed to provide for your family and, and you know, take care of, of those sort of things. So that can really be a stress. And uh, I think that's a big thing that, that people who haven't gone through infertility don't realize is that there are all these associated parts of your life that get affected by it from worrying about mm-hmm. finances to, you know, if you're somebody who potentially has to travel for treatment. Um, again, we're, we're fortunate to have 30 minutes down the road, a, a fantastic clinic, but we know many people who travel, you know, two hours to get to their clinic, three hours who hop on a plane and go, you know, a- across the world in some cases to, to yes. pursue treatment. So having to add all of those pieces in on top of just your everyday life where, where it's, uh, I think it's almost impossible to to forget that you're going through this experience so you know it's something that kind of runs through every part of your life is is just really difficult so that can put a lot of pressure on you of course and on your partner too absolutely you raised a really good point that for most people when they are for many for many people when they are going through infertility treatment it is at a time of their life where they are surrounded by their peers who are getting pregnant seemingly getting pregnant quite easily yeah. and some some getting pregnant when they don't even want to be getting pregnant yeah. and did you or olivia or both feel jealous i mean that's a it's a tough emotion to feel and oh, it's yeah. an and it's an isolating emotion so yeah talk to me about that it is. We absolutely felt jealous. You know, I, I have one experience that's so memorable. I wrote about it a little bit in the book, but uh, we had a New Year's Eve party and we had a bunch of friends over and, uh, you know, we we're, were having a good time. It was sort of just as we were realizing that maybe we were, we were having issues. But, uh, you know, this was a big 
party that we have every year with, with some close friends. And it was really nice. And I remember kind of stepping away for a moment and doing a quick scroll through social media and seeing one of our really good friends who had a pregnancy announcement. And, uh, you know, despite how much fun I was having and how much, you know, I'd look forward to getting together with everybody that just put such a, a black mark on that night. And I just remember that instant feeling of jealousy and anger, um, which, which is so hard because these were also people who were really close friends. And, yeah. and kind of the ultimate irony of this is we later found out that these friends had also done IVF to have their, their children. So, but it was definitely real. And, and certainly, you know, there were times in, in the grocery store too, where we'd, you know, walk down an aisle and see a, a pregnant person down the aisle and, and do an about face and turn around. That was a very real experience. And so, uh, it was, it was hard. And, you know, as we kind of opened up and talked to more friends about what we were going through, we, we did find out that actually there were far more people than we could possibly have known or anticipated who had also had losses, had fertility struggles. So that made us feel certainly less alone. Um, but, but that jealousy was very powerful at first. But, and, and a lot of people don't want to share what they're going through because of all the things we've just talked about, the, the, the emotions that you're feeling or the feeling like that, there is something wrong with you or, or just because they're just more private people. But then there's, it's a catch 22 because then they're not available for hearing in your case that your friends had had a successful IVF treatment or, or, or somebody else has gone through a miscarriage at, at 12 weeks or yeah. two months or whatever. So it's, it's a catch 22 to, to know how to do that. It is. And I think it can be really hard for, for men in particular because of that that kind of stereotype around not asking for help. Uh, again, I think that yeah. whole idea of self-sufficiency is something that's really uh, looms large in the psyche of men. And so um, that was that was a hard lesson, certainly for me. And I think it can be harder for male partners to, to learn is that you do need to reach out. And, and hopefully what you'll find on the other side is similar to what we found, that there are people who want to support you. And of course, people who have walked the same path before who can be there for you in a different way. And I think, especially if it is male factor infertility, but even if it isn't male factor, I do think a lot of men fall into this embarrassment of, I'm less of a man because I'm not able to eat, produce sperm or that is or of a quality they can get my partner pregnant, or for whatever reason, even if you're producing sperm, I'm not doing it right. You know, there is something, and I think that that, you know, it's, we're talking about sex, and that is embarrassing. And so I think that that also plays in with men's ability to want to share. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That, that uh, again, feeling that, you know, to be a man, you have to be able to, to you know, get your partner pregnant is, is something that can be a per- pervasive idea, as, as wrong as we know that is, right? Uh, and, and the one thing that really helps and I would encourage, you know, men to think about there is, you know, understanding that you can define for yourself what it means to be a man, to be a father, and start to challenge these stereotypes. As, as hard as that is, as pervasive as these stereotypes and ideas are in, in the media, we can start to change them. And that's another piece of research I always try to mention is there's so much exciting research out there about how we can change the way we think and how how our brains can really adapt and how the, the ideas that we've maybe worn in over the years, you know, we can start to change those by challenging them. So, you know, we can start to think about what does it mean to us to be a good father? What does it mean to us to be a man or manly? And I think a lot of the ideas that we come up with might sound a lot different than those stereotypes that we talked about earlier. Yeah, most assuredly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we do think, and we, as I mentioned at the beginning, 
that there's a lot of ideas, there's a lot of discussion about the person going through the treatment and taking care of themselves. They're often thinking of doing some, you know, do massage, do acupuncture, do going to therapy, doing things that, that support them, take care of their mental health. But we don't spend much time thinking about taking care of the mental health of the supporting partner. What are some ways that the supporting partner can take care of themselves when their partner is going through treatment, quite frankly, when they're going through treatment, because if you're a, a couple, you're both going through it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and first big thing for men is you, you need to know it's okay. And it's important to take care of yourself too. And you can, you can easily fall into that idea of I need to be the one to take care of things. I need to be the one who's taking action. Uh, this is an instance where you really have to step back and say, I need to support myself and my well-being too. So a couple of, of really good ways you could do that. First, a, a big game changer and thing that I've found really effective is meditation. And I say meditation, but this can look different for different people, right? If, if prayer is meaningful you, for you, that might be, you know, your form of meditation. If going out in, in you know, the woods and hiking is something that gives you peace of mind, uh, it's any practice that gives you a chance to kind of ease your mind, find some peace can be really important because it's so easy during this time to fall into just that hamster wheel of, of anxious thinking of what's next? How are we going to pay for this? Where do we need to go? What's the next treatment? How is it going to go? What if it doesn't work? That I think anything that gives you some mental peace is really important. So, so that's the first one. The second one is I definitely think that, that physical activity can be a big, big help for men. And again, find something that works for you. But certainly for me, just being able to get out and walk or hike or get out in, in nature was really important to be able to kind of calm down. And then certainly the, the third big thing. So I think it's also really important to have somebody else to talk to. We spend so much time often during fertility treatment, only talking to our spouse, to our partner, and, and it can be so isolating that get, that can be a challenge, right? You, you don't want to spend all of your time only having your partner as the person who you kind of have that emotional outlet with. So I really encourage men, reach out to somebody, just one person who can kind of be an external ear for you. Even if you're not having a conversation, just the act of telling them how you're feeling and what you're going through can really be helpful. And this can be uh, anybody who feels comfortable. It can be, of course, a therapist or counselor. It could be a friend. It could be maybe a family member if you feel comfortable with that. It could be a faith leader if you're comfortable with that or a coach or you know an another expert that you find out there. But uh, I think it's so important to just take that step of having somebody to share what you're going through with. And, and again, men can feel that self-sufficiency. So getting out and having somebody who can help you is, is so important. And again, just that act of sharing can really take a, a big burden off your shoulders. I want to take a moment to thank Cryos International Sperm and Egg Bank for their support of this show and our mission, quite frankly, of providing unbiased, medically accurate information. They have been with us for a long time and we truly appreciate their support. Cryos International Sperm and Egg Bank is dedicated to providing a wide selection of high-quality, extensively screened, frozen donor sperm and eggs from all races, ethnicities, and phenotypes. They prepare it for both home insemination as well as fertility treatment. Cryos International is the world's largest sperm bank and the first freestanding independent egg bank in the United States, helping to provide the gift of family. We also want to thank RMA Associates of New York. They are one of the largest infertility practices in that state, as well as one of the largest in the country. By combining the latest innovations in reproductive sciences with compassionate and customized treatment plans, 
RMA of New York is able to provide the very best possible care. And now let's talk about the role of the shot giver. Now, not always does the partner give the shots, but very often the partner does give the shots. Most often that person is not a trained shot giver mm-hmm. or certainly wasn't trained before this. So what was that experience like? Again, we focus on the woman's experience uh, of being the receiver of the shots. And then, of course, that's a real thing. And also the, the hormonal fluctuations and the emotional impacts. I'm not negating that in any way, but I do think that we don't spend much time thinking about what it's like for the person to have to learn and then impose pain albeit not huge pain, but still shots are not pleasant. So, and and just not knowing what you're doing. So talk about what was that experience like for, for you? Yeah, it definitely brings up a lot of complex feelings. I mean, on one hand, uh, it it certainly made me feel more involved and like there was something I could do because Olivia was very, really didn't want to give herself shots, which I think is is something a lot of people can relate to, right? The, The idea of having to give yourself dozens or hundreds of shots is not the most comfortable thing. And so at least on one hand, it was a way I could help. But certainly on the other hand, uh, I, I felt very hesitant, very anxious about, as you said, you know, ca- doing something that was going to make, uh, that was going to give Olivia pain, right? It was going to be a painful mm-hmm. shot. We had to do multiple shots uh, every night during our IVF cycles. We now, as I had mentioned earlier, Olivia also does Lovenox during her pregnancies. So we're, we're at the point where it's literally been hundreds uh, of shots because Lovenox is a daily through her pregnancies. So it was very, uh, very complicated, I would say. But I think there, you know, are, are a couple of things that can help prepare. You know, first is generally your fertility clinic is going to provide some good resources for you to, to help you really understand the whole process and procedure for giving those shots. Take some time to review those. I must have watched the instructional videos and, and materials they sent, you know, probably 10 or 15 times before we even got to that first shot, just making sure I really understood everything, that I had everything well in hand and well prepared. You know, the second thing I did that really helped was I made myself a checklist of just sort of the dosages, the preparations, all the materials I needed. You know, that's that's something that worked for me. I'm a checklist maker in kind of all parts of my life, but having that in front of me really helped me just kind of stay calm, stay present in the moment. And when I was feeling anxious about having to give Olivia a shot, you know, whether this was gonna gonna hurt her, you know, that whole experience of of doing it, it helped me kind of understand, okay, I'm I'm doing everything, I'm I'm not gonna let that whatever I'm feeling in terms of anxiety or worry get in the way of making sure that we do this right. Because of course you you have that feeling too, where you, maybe you've paid thousands of dollars for these, uh, yeah. yes. for these injections that you're, you're giving and you're like, I don't want to mess up a single dose because that's hundreds of dollars that, you know, would be, <laughs> would be thrown out. So layer that on top of everything. Yeah, exactly. Talk about pressure. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. Liquid gold is what you're squirting in. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's crazy to think about it. Uh, you know, but uh, yeah, and the, and the last thing that really helped us was just uh, creating kind of a fun tradition or, or thing to kind of take our minds off the shots. We always listen to some good music while we were doing, while we were preparing for the shots. And that just gave us a little bit of uh, ease and peace of mind and something that could calm us down a little bit as we we're getting into it. And of course, it becomes a routine, you know, after you do, do it 10 times, you will feel like an old pro. But especially in those first couple times, preparation is so key. I know of, of couples who do an audiobook, and during the 
seems to me that would take uh, the mind. Uh, it would take the partner, person giving the shots. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm not sure I would want that, but they they do an audience, and they, so they semi looked forward to it every evening. Yeah. So so whatever, find your way. What speaking of our of of the relationship and and what you can do to support that. What are some tips for staying connected with your partner through the stress of fertility treatment? Yeah, I, I always say view the fertility treatment process as much as possible as an opportunity to work together, to, to work as a partnership, because the more you view it that way, the, the more it's going to be something that keeps you connected. So that's, that's sort of the first thing is just I really encourage men to, to stay involved in the fertility treatment process. And that's attending appointments to the extent that you can, doing research. I spent a lot of time as we were sort of early in our in our process, just listening to podcasts and reading blogs and, and learning about all the different types of treatments and diagnoses. And that just helped me a lot because it, it uh, helped me feel like I could participate in conversations with our RE and our medical team more, more cogently as an active participant and that I could support Olivia. So I'd really encourage folks first to just, you know, do that research so you can be involved. But then as you get into the process, you really need to make time to, to stay connected with your partner. And so a couple of things I would definitely recommend, you know, continue to, to make time for date nights, you know, trips away, special time that's just for you and your partner. And that's not related to fertility treatment because we know it can be so all encompassing. Mm -hmm. So set aside those times to, to do the, you know, whatever's meaningful for you, whether that's, you know, going out for a hike and a picnic or, you know, going to a nice restaurant or going to, you know, a, a movie and dinner, make the time to do those things as, as much as it can feel sometimes like we, we have to put all of our time and effort into the next treatment or the next cycle. Uh, it's so important to, to still have that dedicated time with your partner. I think the other thing to keep in mind too, just in terms of, you know, remaining connected in terms of intimacy during this time is there are going to be points when, you know, your partner may be very uncomfortable if you're doing IVF before an egg retrieval. It's a very uncomfortable time after an egg retrieval can be uncomfortable too. Um, so think of ways that you can maintain your intimacy, you know, whether that's maybe just cuddling up on the couch and watching a movie or things like that. I think it's very important to, to keep that in mind, but also to know that there are points in the process where, where that happens. And then the last thing certainly is just, Along the lines of, of maintaining that partnership, you know, if your partner is making efforts to maybe, you know, go to some workout classes or make some dietary changes, be a participant in that. You know, don't don't make that something that your partner has to do alone. I think it's a great opportunity to connect and work together. You know, go to the gym together, find some recipes that you can cook together and then share. I think anything you can do to to work as a partnership and and you know do this together will help you stay connected. As you mentioned, you and Olivia experienced two miscarriages, one relatively early, but one at the 12-week point where you were expecting to, in fact, were graduating to a uh, leaving, the, uh, leaving the infertility clinic. Mm -hmm. And miscarriage is, is devastating. It's devastating for anyone who is wanting the pregnancy. I, I personally think it's doubly devastating when you've worked so hard to get pregnant. But nonetheless, it's it's... It's a tough time, and it's a time that's, I think, from the, we don't give men permission mm -hmm. to grieve. It, when we, we allow the woman, or hopefully we allow the woman to grieve this loss. So talk about how, how did you deal with the miscarriage for yourself while still supporting your partner? 
Yeah, it was it was such a difficult time because that was certainly a time where it, where it felt like there was a lot of lot of kind of rushing to check in with Olivia and and support her and and a little bit less for me, which again totally understandable, right? She she been through a really difficult experience, you know, a DNC procedure at, at the hospital, which is just you know all really really difficult. But it certainly felt like I was a little bit on my own at certain points there, and so you know the first thing I think is so important is just you know. For men, that can bring up uh, something like a pregnancy loss can bring up a, a lot of those emotions that we are really particularly encouraged or discouraged, I should say, from showing. You know, it brings up sadness, disappointment, maybe depression. And, and those are things in particular that I think, you know, it, it can feel not okay to show those things as men. So if you're going through a miscarriage, I really encourage you to make sure that you have an outlet for those emotions. And that can be a, a few different things. You know, you could see a therapist or counselor that would certainly help. You could uh, do some some journaling or writing. I think sometimes for men, it can feel a little bit more comfortable to write down what you're feeling rather than feeling like you have to tell somebody about it. But then, you know, eventually make sure you make space to talk with your partner too. And I think you can also kind of think about, you know, what's a meaningful way for you to commemorate or sort of process the grief of the miscarriage you know, I, I say in the book, for me, I was, you know, out in our garden one morning after our second miscarriage. And just kind of, you know, as I was planting a few flower seeds, really just took a moment and kind of, you know, sent up a silent prayer, if you will, just kind of saying, thank you for this experience. You know, we're, we're so sorry that we lost you, little one. And, and that for me just kind of was a really small moment that just helped me kind of commemorate, uh, because I think that's something that can feel so difficult about miscarriage, too, is you know, when, when we lose other people in our lives, there's some sort of commemoration or celebration, but there's, there's not always that when you have a miscarriage and, and whether it's, you know, a miscarriage at, at five weeks or 12 weeks or wherever it is, that still feels like a tremendous loss to you. And so make time to commemorate that loss in some way, you know, maybe it's writing a letter to, to that, you know, baby that can be a really meaningful experience for some people. Um, but, but whatever you do, make that space to really process those feelings um, and commemorate it. Because if you don't, you know, those feelings are just going to stay inside and well up. You really need to make space to, to let them out and then talk to your partner about it too. Mm -hmm. Yes. Interestingly, one of the things that I appreciated the most about the book, The IVF Dad, is that you spent time discussing the role of infertility nurses. Mm -hmm. I, I say all the time that I think that Infertility nurses play such an important role in the process of, of treatment, and they're often the ones who have the most direct relationship to the couple, to the patient, to the patient's partner, if there is one. But we again, we it's like their role is totally overshadowed by the, the role of the RE. Yeah. And I really appreciated that you talked about your experience. You had various different nurses and various different experiences, and I thought it would be helpful to talk about. For for one of the uh, one of your nurses, you said you wanted to nominate her for sainthood. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and so so okay. So let's talk about her, uh, and then we will contrast her to some that were not as helpful. But what did uh, I think you called her Jennifer? What did she do that made the very stressful experience of infertility and its treatment more bearable for you as the male partner. Yeah, well, you know, she was just so wonderfully 
compassionate and clear with us. And, and we always really appreciated that, you know, at every step in the process. And as you said, you know, the infertility nurses are we're, we're really 90%, I would say, of our communication and, and support. We, we, of course, loved our RE, but, you know, we saw our RE at, at sort of the big points in treatment. And day to day, we, we spent a lot of time on the phone with our infertility nurses getting updates on egg growth and embryo growth and, uh, you know, next steps for treatments and so forth. So, so they were really the front lines and we, you know, developed a real relationship with, uh, Jennifer as I call her, but she was always really wonderfully compassionate, you know, during our losses was always had just the kindest words and, and it's just as simple as acknowledging them, but also really helped us. She was very clear about explaining different steps in the process, you know, when we were going through embryo growth, we always appreciated how clear she was about setting our expectations. You know, I think that's that's a, such a key thing for fertility treatment is we have to have realistic expectations. And, and uh, you know, she was always very clear about that. You know, I would say we, we had this many, you know, embryos fertilize. Here's what we expect over the next few days. You know, we're, we're not necessarily going to have all of those continue. We hope they do, of course, but that's not the norm. So she was always very clear about those things and really just went above and beyond to uh, stay in contact with us. You know, I've certainly heard from other folks who've been through fertility treatments that, you know, sometimes it can be, as is very common with healthcare in general, it can be very difficult to get in contact with, with a real person. But we we never felt that way. We, we certainly felt like our fertility nurses were always there for us, always, you know, returned calls, returned messages where we had, you know, a, a sort of a portal with the clinic. And and even when we had kind of silly questions, uh, we felt like along the way, never, never, you know, belittled us or anything like that. You know, I think we had one time where we, we maybe got the, the time for our trigger shot during, a, during a retrieval cycle and, you know, had, had some question about like, you know, just clarifying the time, even though they'd said the time very clearly. Uh, I think we we're just like double checking and, and you know, uh, and this was on a Saturday. So, you know, they, they took time out to call us back on the Saturday and say, yep, that's the time. You know, if you're, you know, maybe five minutes on either end, that's okay. Just keep it as close as possible to that time. So, you know, even when we had silly questions, it just felt very, very welcome and, and supported. So we just appreciated that so much. And again, just, just going above and beyond, you know, this particular nurse, uh, Jennifer. So there was even one particular time where uh, Jennifer, on her day off, we had a, one of our beta blood draws to determine whether our transfer had worked. And she said, you know, I'm going to be off that day. It's a Saturday, but I want to be the one to call you. I'm going to call you with, with good news, knock on wood. And so taking that extra step just to, to really be there for us, although, of course, we, you know, we want people to have their lives too, and, and don't expect necessarily for, for people to yeah. be, uh, for, you know, for nurses to be taking their days off. But, you know, we, we just felt that connection and, and it really felt in every action that she took that she was rooting for us and she was part of the team and it ne never felt like it was just another sort of, you know, going through the motions or that we were a number. We always felt very personalized and that she knew our case, knew what we were going through, knew our history. And mm -hmm. so all of that was just a real support because, again, we, we spend 90% of the time communicating with her. And, and you talked about giving the, uh, the, the pregnancy report. And that is something, having talked with nurses, that I know that they often dread, if it's a negative one, obviously mm -hmm. everybody wants to be the one sharing good news. But if how can a nurse make it better when they have bad news to report? Yeah, I think the, the biggest thing is just showing some compassion and recognition 
that it is such a, a hard news to hear to to the people that you're sharing that news with. You know, we, this was a, sort of a, a different nurse, but the the one experience we had that wasn't so good was after one of our, our losses. Our first uh, miscarriage was a blighted ovum in, in which there was just sort of no development of an embryo. And so that one was a little bit more difficult in that we it took a few weeks of drawing betas, doing ultrasounds to determine whether there was going to be any development. And ultimately, there wasn't any. And, and the last conversation we had with the nurse who kind of did the final diagnosis, there just wasn't a lot of compassion there. It was very sort of clinical, went right on to next steps. And of course, amidst this conversation, Olivia and I are sitting here, you know, in the clinic, practically on the verge of tears, realizing that this pregnancy is not going to work out. And we've already gone right on to, you know, here are your options for for termination. And, and so that really just was, was a difficult experience and, and left a, a, a worse taste in our mouths because, you know, it was such a contrast to, to, you know, the vast majority of nurses we interacted with who were so compassionate uh, and so helpful and always took time, you know, if they were sharing bad news to say, even just, I'm so sorry about this. Mm-hmm. You know, we'll we'll make sure to you know be back in contact to to talk about next steps. But we're very sorry, and and just that small show of compassion made such a difference in contrast with that experience after the first loss, where it was a very clinical description and didn't really acknowledge that there was also a, a really difficult emotional experience going on with this. Mm-hmm. And and I think sometimes nurses do this, as all medical professionals do, to protect themselves. And, and, you know, and of course, and they deal with this more often, but just being, and also just being uncomfortable with the emotions that are surrounding, but by not recognizing it and to, to, in fairness to her, she probably thought that telling, you know, the next steps were, would probably be helpful, but, but you have to recognize the emotional component of what the patients are going through. Yeah, yeah, and and definitely uh, that's that's so right. Like we we did, and looking back now, it's easier to see you know the urgency of the situation that we do want to resolve, you know, and and you know complete this this pregnancy that unfortunately hasn't developed. But yeah, at the same time, just just those small kind of kindnesses of saying I'm really sorry about this, you know, and and offering other other forms of support, you know, after uh, our second loss, I think uh, we were were seeing sort of a different nurse and said, you know, we have therapists we can recommend who specialize in supporting couples through loss. And so just little things like that really helped to make us feel supported and and helped me to feel supported too, as as part of the conversation. Mm -hmm. And did, uh, and how did the better nurses that you dealt with, how did, what did they do that made you feel included made you feel like you were a vital part of this other than just the producing the sperm yeah well they they certainly always talked and had a conversation with with both of us i've definitely heard from other other couples who've been through ivf that sometimes you can get in a situation with a clinician where the entire conversation is directed at the female partner and and you know the man's kind of sitting on the sideline and i think of course you know the male partner has a role in that too you have to do your research so that you can participate if you don't know 
if you don't understand, if you don't know what you're talking about, then you're not going to feel like you can participate. But at the same time, you know, it, it was always nice to sit down and even just have, you know, uh, the, the clinician, the nurse, you know, giving eye contact to both of us, asking questions of both mm-hmm. of us. I mean, understandably, again, most of them directed toward Olivia for, for obvious reasons. She's, she's going through most of this. But again, those, those small indicators that, that I was part of this process too, and that they saw me as somebody involved in the process was really important. And I think also helping me and Olivia feel, again, that we were a partnership in here and that it wasn't just something that Olivia had to go through all by herself. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And she isn't, because you are a vital part of this. If if the person, if the patient is fortunate enough to have a support team, their support team and their partner is, is a vital part of this. Well, I appreciated that you discussed infertility nurses because I am such a champion. So thank you of, of, of their role. Thank you so much, Keegan Prue, for being with us today to talk about IVF from the male partner's perspective. I truly appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Don. It was really a pleasure. Yeah, and I, as I mentioned, I thoroughly enjoyed the book. So thank you. 